So this afternoon is an opportunity to reflect on the Dhamma, the way it is, the reality of here and now. And it's a full moon day, the bhikkhus, listen to the recital of the 227 precepts of this particular tradition. This tradition, just to emphasize what tradition really is, something that, that has carried on from one generation to the next. And so uh, this is a tradition 2,565 years old as we assume or presume it's that many years ago. And the tradition that we call Theravada Buddhism is, uh, is like this. And then we talk about the Thai forest tradition, <clears throat> which was established, which we trace back to Lung Phu Man in Thailand, Northeast Thailand, 100 years ago. And so the Lung Phu Man carried on the, the Theravada tradition in Thailand and the monks here are bringing this tradition to California. So Bayagiri is, is considered a traditional Theravadan Buddhist monastery. And I'm mentioning this, reflecting upon it, because in countries, modern countries like the United States, uh, we have traditions but they're not very ancient. So uh, the idea of a form to establish the transmission of a tradition to, to, uh, in the, to the future, to future generations, is, is a kind of the idea of tradition oftentimes is uh, criticized and not understood very well. Because we're always looking for change, for modernization, for making things better. So the idea that one generation is going to make everything better than the previous generation. So this is my own particular reflection on this because I reflect on my Life when I was about 20 years old, I was going to make, you know, I was full of ideas, idealism, and looked forward to making things better. And then uh, by the time I was 30, I was terribly disappointed. Ten years passed, and I didn't see that I was in any way better, except I the ideal that I was going to change the world was completely discarded. And this particular tradition, what we call alms mendicancy, is, 
ערווה. You know, a fairly new idea in a country like this, where where uh, arms mendicants has never been a part of American culture, has has never been part of the American cultural tradition, and so it is a rather new example of something new that taking place in, in California at this time. So it's because it's new, it can also seem strange or according to cultural values, you know, we, it's the idea of being personally independent, self-sufficient, that is very much a, a kind of ideal for Americans to to be able, to, I can look after myself. I have my rights. My my views should be respected. What I think, who I am, the way I am, should be respected. Uh, all human beings are equal, and democracy is uh, is a great it's going to benefit everybody. So these are ideals, and they can be quite beautiful. But ideals are made up in the mind of human individuals. So <clears throat> then the Buddha's emphasis on the way it is, mindfulness here and now, is not about making things better or ideal, but beginning to observe just life as it flows the way it actually is. In reality, whether it's 2,500 years in, in, in India or modern United States. And so, alms mendicancy is, is very much based on the, the realization that, that um, people, human humanity, is basically good and generous. So in the traditional form, uh, sequence of dana sila bhavana, or generosity, morality, and meditation, you know, then, then arms, Alms mendicancy is an opportunity, as seen in a country like Thailand, it's an opportunity to be generous. So the Sangha makes that opportunity available. And the word bhikkhu is Pali word, which is oftentimes translated as beggar. So uh, when we first, when I first moved to the to England, living in London, it was considered, uh, did we dare go on alms round in London because vagrancy and begging is, uh, is uh, breaking the law. <clears throat> and so uh, we restrained ourselves from going on alms round and uh, until we found out that uh, through, uh, through a lawyer, that 
the law against vagrancy and begging was made before there were ever any Buddhist monks living in England. So I said, it doesn't apply to you. And <laughs> so we could go begging in London, feeling quite safe. We were not going to be arrested or breaking laws. Alms mendicancy also is uh, being content, being content with little. And so because of the rules not handling money, um, not growing things, we can't dig in the soil. We've got all these rules that precepts that prevent us from becoming self-sufficient in practical ways. Then um, the idea of making oneself available for alms uh, and to be content with what one gets. And so the ideal, of course, the ideal of one, a good bhikkhu is content with what he has for the food in the alms bowl, the shelter for the night, the robes that he's acquired, and medicine for illness. To be content and grateful for that is an ideal. That's ideal, what an ideal bhikkhu should be like. So then, because we oftentimes are idealists, we, we come from the very high place of how things should be, and how oneself should be. If one ordains as a bhikkhu, then one should be content with the shelter for the night, the robes, the food, uh, the medicine that's available. And so as a young bhikkhu, I tried to be content, but I began to realize you just can't will, will yourself to be content. Because that's not what was really happening, the way it is. And so the idea of being content, one, because I wasn't content much of the time, uh, I felt, you know, I wasn't a very good bhikkhu. I should feel grateful. I should, uh, think, you know, make myself content in some way. But awareness, mindfulness, is aware of the way it is. So this idea of being content wasn't a, a kind of precept that you had to conform to, but a suggestion for looking at discontentment. So I began to, to realize that just willfully trying to say I'm content, I could do that and try to be content. But what was actually happening in my mind wasn't, didn't feel like contentment. It just kind of resignation, obeying the rules, fitting in. And so it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't happy a state to be in. It wasn't content, but, you know, it was the best I could do as a person trying to fit into a new way of life. So then I began to, I got the idea of, of looking at discontentment 
And so this is where, when we talk about reflection, this is an English word for being a witness to the way it is, not the judge, not the critic, not the, the uh, critical being that's saying, you should be content, you shouldn't, you're, you're a bad monk because you're not content and you should be. That's the inner tyrant, this ty tyrannical force that we create in our minds because we're not ideals, we don't, we can't just make ourselves into uh, ideal monks according to some ideal we might uh, assume. But reflecting on discontentment is like this. Uh, and it is saying not criticizing it, so it's not analyzing why I'm discontent or what's wrong with me, but but what you know, being aware of discontentment is like this, and so you're you're taking the place of the witness, the puto, the witness, to the way it is. So this is bhavana, or meditation, in this Theravadan sense of what bhavana means. Being aware of dhamma, of the way it is. So discontentment is a dhamma, it's not the dhamma. If it arises and ceases, it's, we call it a dhamma. It's, uh, you know, it's impermanent. It doesn't, you can't sustain discontentment. It's not a permanent abiding place. And it's certainly not happiness. But it is impermanent and it arises and ceases. It has a beginning and ending. And you, and you keep reflecting that it is what it is, but it's not a real person. When, when there's discontentment in my mind, is it, is it mine? Do I claim it, you know, as, as some kind of personal identity or flaw in my character? I can do that if I'm not reflecting on the way it is. I'm merely creating a sense of personal attachment to an emotion or a state of mind that I'm experiencing in the present moment. So instead of doing that, reflecting on it, it's not trying to change it, but to totally accept it, receive it like a, like a Dhamma teacher. It's a Dhamma teaching you about the way it is and the changingness of conditions as you can actually witness them. So when we talk about the personality or ego, it's a creative thing. If you really reflect on what you, you know, your own personal ego, your tendencies to believe in things, your emotional habits, you know, then you, you create a, a, a separate, a feeling of separateness, an identity with oftentimes very unstable changing conditions. 
So we, in, we can become idealists, get very attached to how things should be. But then that leads to suffering and unhappiness because life in this form, the changing conditions of what we call samsara, is not an ideal. You know, it's not ideal. It's not what the way we would like it to be, but it is the way it is. And so the Buddha pointed that out in all his sutta teachings as they recorded in the uh, canon. You know, it's an effort to try to encourage all of us, human individual bodies, to reflect, to be the observer. It's not to analyze or make value judgments about the state of mind you're in. Because that's a, that's a different uh, mental state. When we feel angry or discontented or offended or upset or frightened or jealous, you know, then the inner critic the monster within will start, you know, according to the ideals you may cherish, which are quite beautiful, you can feel you're not good enough. And so we, we have tremendous problems in the Western world, both in the States and in European countries. Judo-Christianity is very much a religion-based on the idea that, that you're born in sin. So we don't have this sense that, you know, we consider there's something wrong with us from birth, that, you know, you're born as damaged goods already, where in Asian countries like India or China, Japan, where like Hinduism and Taoism, Buddhism and all that, don't have that uh, kind of conditioning. I remember when somebody asked the Dalai Lama once about guilt, and he said, basically, Tibetans like themselves, see themselves as basically good. Same with Thais. And being a meditation, teaching meditation in the West, you're aware of how guilt-ridden Western culture makes us because of this, this tendency to, to be so attached to how democracy should be, what a real democracy should be as an ideal. And, you know, living this long, you know, observing the, the American politics, you know, I don't remember any time where Americans were contented with any political president or government, whether it's a Democrat or Republican. So, so it doesn't, you know, idealism doesn't lead to contentment. It just leads to cynicism or fault-finding or disappointment and blame, blaming the, the inadequacies of 
democratic elections or, or that on others. So it's, you know, there's also the way we personally blame others for our suffering. So the, the individual personality is changing, you know. So examining it over these many years, you know, living as a Buddhist monk, you know, you, you, you get a good relationship with your personality. You begin to see it as not me or mine. It's not what I am. It's a condition that arises and ceases according to other conditions. And so this is reflecting on personality, not trying to change it or trying to improve it, trying to become a, a nicer, better person or trying to get rid of my defects, my flaws, the things I don't like about myself. It's not about trying to get rid of, destroy things or get something you don't have, but understanding the way it is. So then, they, in this tradition, in, in, uh, in all these Asian religions, philosophies, there's this, uh, what they call the law of karma. And so, this is, you know, what, what does this mean? And, you know, so we oftentimes takes on a kind of it's my karma, and so my karma becomes very much me as a separate person. And if the karmic conditions of the present are not very desirable, embarrassing, or totally false or wrong, you know, we can we can uh, resign ourselves. It's my karma. It's a kind of resignation by using karma as an identity. So you hear people in Thailand talking about it's my karma. And so they, even in monastic life, monks, well, if they can't meditate, if they feel they can't meditate, they say it's my karma, I don't have enough barami or accumulated past virtues to meditate in this life. And so these are kind of distortions of what karma really is by attaching to it in, in some kind of personal identity. But karma is, is about sangsara, about conditioned phenomena. And it's not personal. It doesn't mean to, for you to identify with, you know, if whatever state a mind you're in at this present moment and say it's my karma, you can say that, you're free to believe that. But that's not really reflecting on it because ultimately when you have your refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha or mindfulness, there's no karma there. That's not karma. Where the conditions that we identify with, they're all about karma. They're born and die, they begin and end. So like the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air, space, 
sensory consciousness is all karma, but is it a person? You know, it is the way it is. And one way of justifying it, of just resigning oneself to fate in the present moment and say, it's my karma, I can't help it, is, is not, is not you know, developing the moment with wisdom and understanding, but just a kind of personal tendency when you want to understand uh, that uh, you can't help the way it is at this moment and you resign yourself to it. So karma is about birth and death and so we reflect on the, the karmic conditions, the body, the body is a karmic condition, it was born grows up, gets old, and dies. And so we, before the body dies, we can actually observe the arising and ceasing, the birth and death of conditions through witnessing what's going on in your mind or your own body. So Lung Po Cha used to like to say, Dai Gon Dai, which which uh, is tie for die before you die. So this is always fascinating me. Die, go and die. Die before you die. And there's a sonnet, a sonnet, Shakespearean sonnet, whose ending is death once dead, there's no more dying then. So death is the end of a condition. We apply the, the, the word death to usually the body, but like Ajahn Chah was emphasizing that we're dying all the time. As, as you begin to witness death, a condition that ceases, if you're patient and willing to endure what you're feeling in the present moment, you, you're aware of its change, and it, and th and doesn't not necessarily gets better, but it changes, or disappears, dies. So I began to take a special interest. This is many years ago in Thailand, uh, of just watching the ending of things in my mind, noticing the, the absence or how emotions or memories would, that arise and, and pay attention especially to their absence when they cease. It's like this. And this is where you begin to realize the deathless reality. So, die con die, die before you die, is good advice. And this sense that I'm going to die is a creation of the ego because you're identified, you're attached to everything that is born and dies. And so that's why the first uh, teaching of the Buddha was about suffering 
and how to end suffering before the body dies. So in reflective meditation on bhavana, you're the, and this emphasis on bhuto or the witnessing of the way it is. Now usually, you know, in a country like this, people are well educated usually and, and there's so much information. This is an age of incredible opportunity to find out all kinds of things, to acquire knowledge through the internet, through uh, publishing books and, and videotapes and on and on like this. There's so much available now in just the past 50 years. It's amazing what is available about science, psychology, everything that uh, metaphysics, uh, Scientology, uh, totally absurd teachings to very profound philosophical discussions are available now just for anyone who's, who's interested or accidentally uh, finds themselves looking at some video on, on their iPad. So we acquire knowledge, like modern education is all about the acquisition of knowledge, getting degrees at universities, is trying to acquire much more knowledge. And of course it goes on endlessly. The, the variety of knowledge, of things to know, to find out about the karmic conditions of samsara just seem to get more complicated as we, you know, get more aware of the infinite variety of, of conditioned phenomena that arises and ceases. And so we can feel kind of hopeless in our acquisition of knowledge of getting university degrees and on and on like that, but at the end of the day, all that knowledge arises and ceases. You know, so you can't, you know, it's not something stable or dependable. It's interesting and, it, and maybe one can make a good living out of knowing a lot about a lot of things or becoming an entertaining personality. But uh, still, that's not contentment or happiness. And in this country, happiness is the main goal of life, to be happy. And so, happiness is, you know, I remember as a child, uh, wanting a particular toy I remember this vividly because I became obsessed when I saw in a shop window this toy that I really wanted. So I kept pestering my mother to get me this toy. And I remember telling her that if she got me this toy and gave it to me, I would never, I'd be completely content, I'd never ask for anything more again. <laughs> So my mother got the toy and gave it to me 
And I was happy for a while, but then I came bored, I bored with a toy. <laughs> and it surprised me because at that moment, you know, I wasn't lying when I said I never asked for, for anything again, but that's what I believed at that moment. If the only thing that was keeping me from my happiness was that I didn't have what I wanted. And what is happiness? Is it when you get what you want, something, you, you get a new car or whatever, you know, that, that you, uh, you have moments of happiness in life, but it's very changeable. Worldly happiness is very unstable, easily destroyed. But when the Buddha talks about contentment, is called, you know, or nibbana, nirvana or nibbana, the highest happiness. It's oftentimes nibbana is described as the highest happiness. And so uh, this enigmatic word nibbana is, is the highest happiness. So we, we think, what is that, getting everything we want and being content as a person or being a really the best bhikkhu in the world or, you know, as we think in terms of the worldly conditions, the way the mind thinks and idealizes everything, nirvana is an ideal that is, makes us want to attain it. And then the whole reflective nature of uh, Theravada Buddhist monasticism is about contentment with four requisites, shelter for the night, food in the alms bowl, robes, based on the lowest possible uh, kind of standard of rag robes. We're, we're not allowed to ask for anything, but we can find rags that uh, lay people have thrown away and make a robe. So it's called a rag robe tradition. And then uh, shelter for the night, root of a tree. It's a, that's very low standard. Shelter for the night, rag robes. Medicine is uh, fermented cow's urine, which was obviously some kind of medical treatment in ancient India, but that's not very, uh, you know, you can't imagine trying to be content with fermented cows you had. Or, <laughs> so these, these requisites, you know, are, are placed at the lowest possible standard. But the Buddha knew that, that the lay communities would, if one was uh, keeping within the traditional forms of Vinaya as bhikkhus and meditating, that that would inspire them. It was because it was a, a message, you know, a way of uh, reflecting on life and understanding Dhamma, realizing Nibbana for yourself.
So the, the particular form, when I went to live in, in England, you know, the, the wearing these kind of robes in London was, uh, I considered it like a, bringing this particular tradition into the into consciousness of of the people there. So even though there was, you know, discontentment, the robes didn't work so well in a country like England as they do in a country like Thailand, with a very warm country. And England's known for its wet dampness. So, uh, you know, there were all kind of attempts to adjust, to adapt to the existing weather conditions of a different climate, different country. But the main form has always been respected as, as you see here in Abhayagiri. So then, trying to make myself content with four requisites, sometimes I could just out of, you know, under certain moods feel content with them, because I wanted to be content as a, as a person. I like the idea of contentment. But what is contentment as a reality, as a real experience? And so just, you know, trying to to uh, be calm and grateful and and uh, accepting uh, was was you know admirable ways of trying to deal with the, the life. But still, the, <clears throat> there's a lot to be discontented about. Living in London when you've been living in uh, Thai forests for years in a busy, world-famous city like that, and we lived on a fairly busy street outside the, the Vihara in Hampstead. And so the monks that were there had to deal with discontentment, the noise of traffic, the uh, just the... Uh, there was a pub across the street from the Vihara, and they, in the summertime, you know, they played rock music, which would drift into the Vihara when you're meditating, and you feel discontented with that. And, it, you know, the rock music, I remember, wasn't even very good rock music. <laughs> so the critical mind, you know, the why it shouldn't be this way, we've got to get out of London, live in the forest, and on and on like that, discontenting, complaining about things. Rather than a, a shelter for the night, there was arms food in the bowl, we had robes and medicine. And UK has a really good medical system, national health. And so, you know, immediately, I was only in London about three days when they insisted I sign up for a uh, health care. And I was surprised because I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm a, 
an American. I've, I've just arrived here. I'm an immigrant. And uh, they want to put me, make me sign up for something. You know, I'm not even a resident, proper resident or citizen. They said, it doesn't matter. That people come from all over the world to get medical treatment in England because it's free. And so I was quite impressed with that, knowing how the American health system works. Then when we, we lived in London for two years and then we, we went to uh, West Sussex to Titters and there was a lot to be discontented about. And so discontentment, you know, then uh, when you ordain monks and nuns and then they want to leave, you feel discontented with that. Disappointed or discontented. And then uh, uh, on and on like that. There's so much in monastic life to be disappointed about or discontented. But uh, And so this is recommending to be the witness of discontent rather than trying to will, fear, will yourself into being, trying to fool yourself that you are contented when you're not. So bhavana is observing the way it is. And like right now, none of us can help the way we feel at this moment. You don't choose to feel uh, emotionally, what you're feeling at this moment, it just happens. Like our karma, the karma of individuals, it's different. You know, so we tend to be very critical of those whose karma we don't particularly like. So, you know, we, we think they should, people should be a certain way, respectful and honorable and honest and, and grateful and kind and an ideal person is all that. But all of us are karmic conditions that we cling to and identify with and they're always in this uh, changing process, they're unstable so we find our stability, what is stable in every single one of us is awareness. Because that's not a condition, that's not a karmic condition. And then we can say that's what one really is, all of us. You begin to, to get out of these, the separative position of being a separate person because that idea of being an individual, separate, physical body, a separate personality, is a lot to, you know, it's very threatening. As a person, as a physical human being, as a male or female, there's a lot that, you know, one's going to be criticized, misunderstood. Can we understand and appreciate everybody's karmic experience of this present moment. We might take an inventory to find out how everyone is feeling, how they see what they're feeling at this moment. We can say, well, some is 
I approve of, some I don't understand at all, some is wrong. Those are judgments that individuals, personalities, egos make about others. So what is the way out of suffering? The way out of discontentment is understanding. And this is what we call wisdom. It's universal wisdom, it's not personal knowledge of Buddhism. It's not having a PhD in Buddhist studies or Abhidhamma. It's the simple reality of witnessing, trusting in awareness. Before I started reflecting on Dhamma at this event, and it was asked to give a, you know, formal request for giving a talk, and I gave the Namotasa, then I gave this Pali sense, which I always found very inspiring, Aparuta Desangamatasa Tawara, and it's, <clears throat> the gate to the deathless is open. And when, in the, according to the suttas, when the Gautama, the Buddha, was enlightened, he made this pronouncement, the gate to the deathless is open. So what is that? You know, it's, it's, uh, what, what is the gate to the deathless? And, and so this, this inquiry into the way it is, you see that what we identify with is all about death, ending, change. And, and that's why the first noble truth is suffering, because when we're attached to these unstable, inadequate conditions, <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. We're caught in the momentum of habit and belief, and fear, and discontentment, and unhappiness. So why do people drink so much, or take drugs? You know, because they, they can't stand the present moment as it is, as they're experiencing the realities of here and now. They can't bear the conditions that they're feeling, the emotions they're feeling at this present moment. So one way to distract oneself from the suffering of the present moment is uh, have a drink, smoke pot, take drugs, go to sleep, eat something, uh, endless distractions, turn on the TV, ways of, of dealing with boredom and disappointment and fear, guilt, remorse, because the present moment is, you know, we, we aren't happy as, as karmic conditions in the present moment, and we want to be happy, so one way of doing that is drinking. Before you can get a kind of momentary happiness or take drugs and things like that that, that give us a sense of high or a sense of happiness or bliss. 
which is very desirable, but it, it's impermanent, it dies. That kind of happiness has no stability and leads to addiction. We become dry addicts, alcoholics through our need for distraction in these various ways of using substances. So meditation then is, in this pavana, meditation is a generic term for almost any kind of mental training. But in terms of the Pali word pavana, it's mindfulness. And this emphasis on witnessing the way it is. Noticing that something arises and letting it be what it is and it ceases. If you do this, if you, if you really practice pavana, trust it, then you will begin to, to realize the end of suffering. The present moment is the very end of suffering rather than a miserable experience that you want to distract yourself from. William Blake, the English poet, said, contentment is heaven itself. So contentment is bliss, it's not personal. It's not like, I'm content as a person. As a person, I still live with, with, with the habit patterns, my language, my memories, the human form, the human form. So as a, if I'm a, when I become concerned about my body and my emotional habits and my memories and thoughts, then I'm no longer content or happy. Because what is an old man, what do I have to look forward to, you know, death. At this age, you're going to die soon. So as a person, that is, uh, you know, that's, as a, as a conditioned personality, you know, death is a mystery. It's it's, we don't quite know where, what, to, what will happen when the body dies. So my sister, who passed away a week ago, uh, when I last saw her, she was very frail. She was looking forward to dying to be with Jesus. So that was her way of dealing with the the eminent prospect of death was that when you're dead you go and live with Jesus, which is very comforting on a conditioned level. Or I've been a good monk for 50, over 50 years, so I, I will, should I, will I be going to Nibbana when I die? You know, that would be a comforting thought as a person. That's personal thinking. Those are concepts, words. 
And as a person, you know, you, 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 when you, you can think, may well, I haven't been that good, you know, will I have to be reborn? <laughs> and so, so then you uh, start doubting, you know, the whole question of being a per separate person creates endless doubts. Because you're not what you think you are, or believe you are. You're not a body. You're not the emotions you have, your memories or thoughts. They're, they are what they are. They can be pleasant, painful. But there, you know, we can see all of the conditions, all conditions are impermanent. So that kind of reflection is developing wisdom. All conditions are impermanent. Because they are. So it's not like a Buddhist doctrine to believe in, but it's advice, wise advice on how to interpret the conditions we're experiencing as individual per people. And so this reflective awareness is, uh, you know, a great gift that we, we can actually, you know, the Buddha realized and tried to use words such as the Four Noble Truths, the Dependent Origination, the, the Suttas and the Tripitaka and all that, are attempts to try to encourage us to not just read the, and believe the words that become Buddhist, but to really experiment, investigate. And that's always done in the present moment. You know, right now is all, all there ever is. There's no past or real future. The future is the unknown. Past is a memory. Now is the knowing. And so this, this emphasis on awareness here and now, as you abide in it, trust it, the reality of awareness is contentment. And you can call that happiness if you want, because it's not the worldly happiness of getting high on drugs or, or get everything going well for you on the worldly level, but that kind of happiness is impermanent. So this talk this afternoon is, is just a way of encouraging you to learn to trust in awareness. Now no one can make you do that, it's up to you. But these kind of reflections are attempts to encourage that kind of trust in, in, this, in these teachings of the Buddha because it's not to to believe them because they're not beliefs. They're not metaphysical positions. They're not doctrines. They're teachings to awaken us to the way things are. 
So whatever you're feeling in this moment is just the way it is. And, and this kind of abiding in this, learning to just receive life as you experience it, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. But it ends. All conditions that arise cease. And what's left when everything has ceased is peace and contentment. And then they call that Nibbana. So it's not like as a person you can attain Nibbana, even though you hear people talking like that. There's, nobody ever attains Nibbana as a separate person. Your personality can't become an Arahant or a Buddha or anything else. Personalities are formed conditions. They're impermanent and unsatisfactory and not personal. So when you're trying to become an Arahant or trying to attain Nibbana as a person, inevitably you're going to fail at it because it's impossible. But knowing that the personality that you're experiencing right now the emotions you're experiencing right now are the way they are. That kind of awareness is not personal, it's conscious, conscious awareness that is universal. And that's where human equality is perfect. Because consciousness is not personal, it's it's what, what holds everything together, where all conditions arise and cease. And through this kind of reflection, also wisdom manifests in our conscious condition, conscious awareness, through uh, realizing the unity of the universe. It's one whole, complete, perfect whole. In the, and the, and the conditions in consciousness are their very nature imperfect. So by exploring this yourself, you begin to know this for yourself. It's no longer just faith in what the Buddha said or what the, some teacher tells you, but it's it's you know you realize this for yourself. You know this because it is reality of what, what one really is. So when the gate to the deathless is open, the second line is, ye soda one tabla moon chan tu satang, and that translated, those that hear this, trust in it, trust in awareness, the deathless awareness, conscious awareness, of the here and now, trust it. Don't try to find it, because you can't. It's like looking for yourself, you know, you, where, do you, where can you find yourself? Or trying to see your own eyes, you know, it's impossible for any of us to look at our own eyes. Because the eyes are meant for looking at objects. 
consciousness, you can't find as an object because that's what you are. It's not an object that you can, you can imagine it, you can believe in definitions of consciousness, but you know you're conscious. Consciousness is here and now, and it's non-personal, and it's the gate to the deathless. So I offer this as a reflection.